Part 2, Chapter 3, Articles 1 through 5 of The Christian Nurse and Her Mission in the Sick Room. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Christian Nurse and Her Mission in the Sick Room by Francois Xavier Gautrelet, translated by John Mason Neal. Part Two, Chapter Three of the Care of the Soul and the Means that Must Be Used that the Sick Person Profit by His Sickness. Article One Things that You Must Observe Relative to the Patient's Room. You might well place in the room and before the eyes of the patient pictures of our Savior Jesus Christ, especially in his passion. The poor, particularly children, are wonderfully affected by such help to devotion. Nevertheless, in this, as in all things else, you must have regard to the present disposition of the patient, and not endanger the good you hope to do him by abruptly putting these pious practices before persons hitherto strangers and perhaps opposed to them. Take out of the room all objects that may awaken any dangerous passion in the soul of the patient, such as foolish and improper pictures. You must still more carefully keep away those persons who, in whatever way, have been the occasion of sin to the sick man, or may become so. It is always right, and sometimes it is necessary, that these persons should go out of the house. You should not even allow them to visit the sick man, and this is a point of great importance in hospitals and elsewhere. You must therefore carefully watch over those persons who ask to see him, and if you suspect them, refuse them. Article 2. Of what should be avoided in speaking to the sick person. You should avoid recalling to the sick person those for whom he has any hatred, or, on the contrary, any unholy affection. If it is necessary to speak to him about them, you must do it with precaution, so as not to expose him to sin. You would consequently abstain from inquiring in his presence of those who have injured him in his property, his reputation, or his person, and who may have contributed to his illness. If he himself begins a conversation on this subject, you should try to turn him gently to something else. Neither must you, without necessity, talk to him about his children or his temporal affairs. The least inconvenience on such subjects would be to distract the sick man from more useful thought. They might easily reawaken slumbering passions or at least throw him into danger. In speaking to the sick man, you must avoid all that may fatigue him or disturb his mind. It is, therefore, well to use simple language and ordinary expressions. 
you would also do well in speaking to the lower orders to use such language as they can understand. Article 3. How the patient must be taught to accept his sickness with resignation. The conduct of the patient during his illness and the benefits he may derive from it depend almost entirely on the way in which he regards it and the disposition in which he receives it. There is, therefore, nothing more important than to make him understand its advantages and to dispose him to endure its severity in a spirit of faith. For this, two things are principally necessary. To persuade him of the utility of the sickness and the numerous benefits he may derive from it. To disperse the different pretexts that are used to obscure thoughts of faith and to keep up the repugnance of nature. Let us see first what should be suggested to the sick person to dispose him to accept his sickness with resignation. It is a remark that you must always remember in tending the sick. It is of the highest importance, but its application is more or less difficult. Do you wish to suggest to your patients those feelings which enter into their hearts and produce upon them the effect you desire. You must know how to divine their disposition. Take them as they are, identify yourself in some sort with them. Appreciation of their interior condition will make you know what you may easily suggest to them in each circumstance. Their resignation or their natural repugnance their fear or their trust will put you in the right way, and setting out from the place where you find them, you may insensibly lead them to that to which you wish to lead them. This principle of conduct is fundamental in this matter, as in many others. Here are some reflections which you may read to the sick person to bring him to resignation. One. Sickness is the necessary consequence of our nature, and the union of the soul with the body tainted with original or natural sin. No one is exempt from the sad necessity of suffering. It would avail me nothing to give way to grief and impatience. I should thus only aggravate the sickness of the body and add to it a still more dreadful sickness, that of the soul. We are all subject to this law, hard indeed for man, but at the same time very salutary. The rich and powerful of the world are not exempt from it. Kings must submit to it, as well as their subjects. The saints themselves have been sick, suffered, and died. What do I say? The Savior of the world, the Son of God, our Lord, to sanctify our sufferings and our death, has willed to taste it in all its bitterness. O oh my God, I will not complain with such examples before my eyes. Thou art my Master. 
it is not thy servant for whom thou desirest death, but for sin. Yes, it is sin that thou wouldest destroy in me. Thou art my father, and if thou permittest me to suffer here, it is to purify me from my faults, and to make me worthy of thy kingdom, where nothing that is defiled can enter. Lord, give me patience. O my Saviour, I would unite my sufferings to those which thou hast endured. Fortify my courage, and since I belong to thee, having been purchased with the price of thy precious blood, do not forsake me. He who feareth God, saith the Holy Spirit, should not fear death, because it is for him a source of happiness. 2. Sickness, in the designs of God, ought to be efficacious in assuring our eternal happiness. Oh, that this motive were all-powerful to make us receive it in love! Upon what does our eternal fate depend? In the manner in which we die, and our disposition at that decisive moment. Now, what is more efficacious than sickness to help us to prepare for it? Could God give us a stronger proof of his desire that we should not be lost but saved? He is not content with warning us in his holy gospel to be always ready, but, as if he feared to take us unawares, he generally sends sickness beforehand to announce to us the near approach of death and to prepare us for it. Yet once more, how wonderful is this grace, since it is uncertainty which, more than anything else, makes death terrible, and the greatest favor that God can give us is lovingly to warn us that we may not be taken by surprise and that we may have time to prepare. Thus, then, my life is in thy hands. Some days of suffering may ensure me a happy eternity. I have only to will, and heaven is mine. Nothing can hinder my gaining it, since God offers it to me, and gives me both the time and the means of assuring to myself its possession by asking pardon for my sins. Article 4. How to overcome the pretext which would hinder our receiving sickness with resignation. It is understood that, in what we are about to say, the habitual dispositions of the sick person must be studied. You must take him at that point where you find him, and lead him on to the desired degree of perfection. You will have recourse, sometimes with advantage, to purely human motives to introduce, little by little, something more perfect. Often, also, you would exert yourself more effectually for the benefit of the patient by destroying the pretexts which nature does not fail to oppose in such a case to the divine will. 1. 
If it only concerned myself, the sick man will say, I could easily divine what to do. But my family, my children, what will become of them? Reply, God is their father and yours. He will not forsake them. He takes care of the birds of the air. Will he not take care of his children? Put your trust in him, and win by your resignation his blessing on you and your children. After all, should they suffer here, provided they are saved and win heaven, what does it matter? Take heed that you ensure for yourself its possession. Who knows but that you may be able to help them there? Sin is man's only true evil, as there is no real good but love and good works. We are rich enough when we possess God, and it is often safer to live in a mediocrity bordering on indigence than in ease and the luxuries of life. 2. Another will regret that he has not time to repent of his numerous sins. Remind him that the best and most perfect penitence is to do the will of God in everything, and above all to accept the sickness which he sends with all its consequences. Make him understand that this sacrifice, generously made, will alone suffice to assure him of salvation, and that the time of his sickness, if he knows how to profit by it, will furnish him the means of greatly pleasing God. Finally, let him thank God that he has not died in a time when he was guilty of mortal sin. There are those to whom death is painful because it takes from us the possibility of doing any more for the glory of God. Here also you should make the sick person understand that there is nothing more excellent than the holy will of God, who knows his desires and will recompense them. The single sincere disposition to die willingly that we may possess God will acquire for us in one moment the perfection which we desire, says St. Augustine. Besides, you wish, you say, to live that you may do good, but may not the future be dangerous for your soul. And God, who gives you now the opportunity of assuring your eternal salvation, may he not foresee that you will be lost if your life should be prolonged? 3. It often happens that sick persons complain that they can neither pray nor work, but is not suffering more excellent than prayer or work? Or rather, is it not, when we suffer with resignation, the best prayer and the most meritorious work, as it is generally the most painful? 4. You have fears for the past? Remember that sentence of one of the friends of St. Augustine. If I will, from this moment I am the friend of God. 
si volo amicus de ecce nunc fio. Yes, whatever may be the number of my sins, however enormous my guilt, if I will, from this moment, I am the friend of God. You regret the time of which sickness seems to deprive you? Know well that you cannot employ it more usefully than in doing the holy will of God. You wish the future were in your power? Well, you will employ this future in loving and blessing God eternally. What better use can you make of it? Nondum credit qui mortem timet. He who fears death, says St. Augustine, has not a living and entire faith. He who is perfect, says the same saint, suffers life with patience and receives death with joy. Qui perfectus est, patienter vivit et delectabilitur moritur. 5. You are grieved at dying so young. But how many die still younger? What would long life profit you if for all eternity you should be separated from God and burning in the flames of hell? Ought you not rather to return thanks to God that he has preserved you to this day and now gives you the opportunity of obtaining heaven? You have here relations, children whom you love, and must not they also die? Will they not soon follow you to the heaven of which you are about to take possession? You have great riches, possessions to which your heart is attached. But what are all these in comparison with the heaven offered to you by God? Would these perishable riches have followed you later to the grave? And is it not better to leave them when God rules than to possess them with the danger of one day losing them with sorrow? Article 5. How we must contend with the different temptations to which sickness is exposed. We cannot here enter with detail into all the temptations to which sickness may expose us, but we will speak of the most common and point out the principal methods which may be used to overcome them. 1. Temptation against faith. These temptations generally attack educated persons who have acquired the habit of submitting everything to the examination of their reason, and who lean too much upon their own judgments. If the sick person is with this kind of temptation, you must advise him as the best remedy to change the subject and to occupy himself with other acts such as contrition, hope, and charity. Let him thank God for the blessing of being born in the bosom of the Church Catholic and of dying in her communion. Let him return no other answer to the suggestions of the evil spirit than, I believe what Holy Church believes and teaches. Let him not forget 
that the merit of faith consists in submitting his mind to truths that he cannot understand, and that this obedience to God, the master of minds and hearts, pleases him infinitely. You may, if the temptation continues to harass the sick person, remind him that the divinity of the Christian religion is abundantly proved by its establishment throughout all the world, by numerous miracles worked in its favor, by millions of martyrs who have died in confirmation of their faith, etc. Humility and the consciousness of his ignorance and the weakness of his mind is also a very efficacious means of overcoming this temptation. What am I, O oh my God, to set myself up above the whole church and to call in question so many doctors and saints? Ignorant and blind, what can I do but humbly submit to believe firmly what thou teachest me? O oh, nothingness, humble thyself. Corruption and misery, be silent. 2. Temptation to Despair This is the principal temptation with which the devil assaults the sick. This is why one should be very careful in speaking to them of the justice of God, the pains of the damned, in setting before them the enormity of their guilt. But we should rather seek to inspire them with trust in the mercy of God and in the passion of the Savior and in the divine promise. You will therefore remind the patient, 1. Of the infinite goodness of God, who is therefore called the Father of mercies. He seeks those who fly from him. He complains of those who will not return to him. He assures us that he willeth not the death of a sinner, but rather that he should live, and that he is ready to forgive a man's sins as soon as he detests them. A single act of contrition suffices to remit all the sins of life. David said to Nathan, I have sinned. Nathan answers him, The Lord hath put away thy sin. The publican cried out, God be merciful to me, a sinner, and was justified. The prodigal son arose and said to his father in his sorrow, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee and immediately the embraces of his father assured him of his pardon. 2. You will speak to him of the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ, who came down to earth to save sinners, as he himself teaches. I am not come, he says, to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He assures us, him that cometh unto me, I will in no wise cast out. He compares himself to the good shepherd who, leaving the care of the faithful sheep, goes after that which is lost, 
and brings it back upon his shoulders rejoicing, and appears thenceforth to love it with a kind of preference, as we see in St. Magdalene, St. Margaret of Cortona, St. Augustine, and many other saints. It is on this account that whoever has a good will should never fear damnation, since our blessed Lord, that he might not condemn us to eternal death, willed himself to be condemned to death upon the cross. 3. You should dwell upon the certainty of the divine promises and the assurance that God gives us that he will grant his grace to those that ask it. Ask, and ye shall receive, he says to us. Verily I say unto you, Whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Which promise must not only be understood as applying to the righteous, for it is written in St. Matthew 7, 8, Every one that asketh, receiveth. It suffices, therefore, to pray for the grace necessary to salvation to be assured of obtaining them. The Lord is good to the soul that seeketh him, says Jeremiah, Lamentations 3, 25. 3. Temptation to Vain Glory if you find that the sick person rests in a presumptuous confidence of his salvation and leans too much upon his good works, you must remind him in ourselves we have nothing but sin and that all that is good in us comes from God and does not belong to us. What hast thou that thou didst not receive? First Corinthians 4 7. Let him not forget that no one on earth can have an infallible certainty of his eternal salvation. No man knoweth whether he be full of either love or hatred. Ecclesiastes 9, 1. And that we ought to keep ourselves till the end in a salutary fear, according to the advice of the Apostle. Philippians 2.12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 4. Temptation to impatience. If the sick man suffers the pains of sickness impatiently, you will represent to him the horrible torments endured by the martyrs for the name of Jesus Christ, giving themselves up to be burnt alive cast into the fire, torn in pieces by the iron of the torturers. You will especially place before his eyes what Jesus Christ, innocence itself, suffered for love of him. It is in vain to seek to avoid the sufferings of sickness, for it is impossible. And if we do not learn to receive them with patience, we shall suffer both in this life and in the next, while if we resign ourselves to the will of God, we will not only soften the sufferings of this life, but we will increase our merit and the glory which is to be their recompense 
according to that word of the Savior, your sorrow shall be turned into joy. St. John 16, 20. You will try to make the sick person understand that the sufferings which accompany the last moments of life serve to adorn his crown, since to suffer patiently is the most perfect of all works, as St. Bonaventura remarks when treating on this text. St. James 1, 4. Let patience have her perfect work. Let him not forget that it is thus that God treats his friends in this life, the cross being the most certain sign of our predestination. What more consoling for us, poor travelers in this veil of tears, than the word of the Apostle, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. 2 Corinthians 4.17 The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Romans 8.18 the pains of death ought not to affright the heirs of a crucified God, says St. Cyprian. Nectarian crucifixi hirides mortis supplicia. You must, above all, carefully instill into the sick person conformity to the will of God, under whatever circumstances, whether or not the remedies are effectual and therefore you will exhort him often to ask God for patience. It will be well also to produce in him acts of faith, hope, and love, or to repeat to him a prayer asking for the grace of patience. For the surest and easiest way of making him pray is to pray with him. Very often you obtain nothing by saying to a sick person, Ask, pray. You must put in practice what you wish him to do. This remark applies equally to children, in whom you wish to inspire any feeling of piety, and extends to many like cases. Below you will find the forms of different acts which should be read to the sick person. 5. Temptation to Hatred and Vengeance You must remind the sick person who still harbors hatred against his neighbor of the precept imposed on all Christians to love their enemies, St. Luke six twenty seven twenty eight. It is God who commands this, and we must obey. To forgive their enemies is an essential condition for those who hope to obtain it from God, and it is likewise the certain reward. That is to say, if you do not forgive, God will not forgive you. And on the contrary, if you forgive, God will forgive you. St. Luke six thirty-seven. Your brother has treated you unjustly, you say. But is not your conduct towards God still more guilty? 
If, then, you desire God to forget the wrong you reproach yourself with having done towards him, how much more ought you not to forgive your brother the injury you have received from him? Nothing is more pleasing to God than the forgiveness of injuries. The history of the saints furnishes us with many proofs of this truth. But the most beautiful example that can be set before a Christian is that of his Savior dying upon the cross and praying for his murderers, whom he even seeks to excuse before his Father. It will be well to insist upon that petition in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our sins as we forgive them that trespass against us and to make the sick person understand what it is he asks of God, that it would be his own condemnation if he did not forgive, while if he generously sacrifices all his resentment, he may in a measure be assured of heaven, since he has fulfilled the condition imposed upon him. To certain persons you may also very usefully represent that the forgiveness of injuries is the proof of a great and generous soul, and set before them this act as so much more meritorious for them and to the glory of God as it is more difficult and heroic. You may read with advantage to the sick person who is in the case of which we are treating the parable contained in St. Matthew eighteen twenty three through 35. End of Part 2, Chapter 3, Articles 1 through 5.